Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. We'll start at verse 5. Then the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Let's pray. Father, we are here to bow our heads toward the earth and to worship. We thank you for your name. We pray that you would write your own new name upon us that we too might be exactly how you describe yourself, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Father, thank you that you showed this, that you lived up to your name preeminently at the cross of Christ. We ask that you would focus our attention on that as the place where your name is revealed in an even greater fashion than on the summit of Sinai. Help me to speak accurately and boldly about your name and help us all to listen and to be marked by that name, that honorable and glorious name that is your name and ours in your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we looked at the context of this last week. Remember, Israel has made the golden calf. God has, well, Moses has smashed the two tables of the law. Now Moses has come back up to Sinai to deal with God and say, Lord, please accompany us in the tabernacle to the promised land. God said, yes, I will do that. And Moses then, emboldened by his success, asks for an even greater thing. And he says, show me your glory. And God agrees to show Moses his glory And that is what is described in these verses. It doesn't describe the glory of God. It's a visual revelation. God showed his glory to Moses. But rather than describing the glory, it tells us about the audio portion of the revelation, what Moses heard. And what Moses heard was the name of God. These ten attributes, roughly, as I break it down, the Jews break it down into 13 attributes in this passage. And that's what they call it the 13 attributes, so you might hear me refer to it as that. I'm not sure how they get 13 out of this passage. Clearly, there are many attributes here that describe to us what our God is like. God's glory, we'll see, is inseparable from His name, His visible revelation from His verbal revelation. And that demands, therefore, that we listen to Him, fear Him, and worship Him, as Moses did when he heard this revelation. So as we saw, Moses ascended Sinai. He went up, but it's not that God was already there. Moses didn't climb up to God. Moses gets to the top of the mountain, but then the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. People on spiritual mountaintops are not particularly closer to God or not substantially closer to God. 
What's that statement? You may stand at the bottom of the deepest mine. I might stand on the top of the highest mountain. But I can no more touch the stars than you can. The distance between God and earth is so great that the distance of five or ten miles between the bottom of the deepest pit and the top of the highest mountain is nothing. There is ten miles out of billions and billions of miles makes no difference. Moses ascends Sinai, but that doesn't bring him closer to God. God condescends to come down and stand with him. So again, Moses doesn't say, all right, here's what I observe about you, Lord. Rather, Moses simply hides in the cleft of the rock, covered by God's hand, and he hears what God proclaims. God proclaims his name. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So God doesn't leave himself anonymous. By looking at the exterior, you can't tell much about a person. You can tell some, right? And of course, Moses only saw the back. You can tell even less from the back than you can from the front. You could sit, for instance, in the subway next to Chuck Norris. You might never know that he is or was at one time that incredible specimen of raw manhood and so on that people joke about. You could meet a karate black belt or something like that and not know it just by looking at the fellow. But God doesn't show himself to Moses silently and say, all right, Moses, figure it out. What am I like? Here I am. No, God shows himself to Moses and he also describes himself to Moses. The first thing, of course, that he tells us about his name is the name itself. The name is Yahweh. Now that name doesn't sound particularly stunning or overwhelming. It sounds like the Hebrew word for I am, or rather, he is. Echye is I am, Yahweh is he is. So his name is a form of the verb of being. He is. What does that name mean then? It means that he is the self-feeding fire. We talked about this. He was in the burning bush, and the fire burned in the bush, but did not consume it. The fire did not need the bush to live. The fire was not drawing on some hidden source of coal or some secret gas pipeline. God is the self-feeding fire. He sustains himself. He depends on no fuel Nothing outside of himself. He is all, he has all that he needs already within himself. All else that is comes from him, depends on him, and returns to him. We could say, in fact, that God is the only one who has being. And in a certain sense, everything else that exists is becoming, is changing, came to be, and can cease to be. Only God simply is. Full stop. And that's his name. I am who I am. I don't depend on anything outside myself. Nothing can alter or change me. And this is what Paul is getting at in Romans 11 when he says, of him, through him, and to him are all things. Everything that exists came from God. It's of him. Everything that exists was made by God. It's through Him that it ever came to exist. 
And everything that exists, exists for God. It is directed to Him, will return to Him in some sense and glorify Him in the end. Even if it looks like it's not doing so now. So this name alone tells us, in one sense, enough to sustain us for the rest of our lives and the rest of eternity. God isn't dependent on who wins the next presidential election. God is not affected by heat and cold. God doesn't worry about the sun burning out or about the earth spinning out of its orbit and being lost, wandering in the darkness of space. Those things would destroy the human race. We understand that. But there is nothing, no catastrophe that can harm the living God. He is He is dependent on nothing outside himself. But to that name, that name, of course, he had already revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Moses said, what is your name? And he said, I am who I am. Say, I am has sent me. Ekye Yahweh. Now he adds a number of other descriptors of his character. And the first one is merciful. God is merciful. Mercy means compassion on misery. He's not cruel. He's not hard-hearted. We look at this world and we see misery. I, I told you before how I saw alongside of one of our Campbell County roads a dead antelope. And somebody with a very sick and twisted mind had affixed a large smiley face balloon to the back leg of this antelope. That, right, when you see the amount of death and suffering in this world, you might come to the conclusion that God likes misery. God wants people to suffer. God wants animals to suffer. But that is not true. God is merciful. And He has compassion on misery. He cares when He sees misery. And He acts to relieve that misery. That's the first thing he says. And to that he adds that he is gracious. Gracious means having grace, showing undeserved favor, even to people who aren't miserable. The best way to describe graciousness is given back in Exodus 22, where God says, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets, for that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it will come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. God cares about a poor person and what he's going to sleep in. He cares about whether you or the man in the street has enough covering to cover his whole body at night. People might say, oh, it's... God is too busy to care about that. God says quite the opposite. No, I am gracious. I care whether your blankets cover your toes. He is full of grace, full of mercy. And he's also slow to anger or long-suffering. People can provoke God for a long time before he gets mad. We all are privileged to know certain individuals who naturally have this temperament, a long-suffering, gracious temperament. And, of course, we know people with the opposite, a short-suffering temperament where the least little thing, boom, they go off. 
God isn't like the people with the short fuse. He takes it and takes it and takes it. And when he does get angry, he doesn't blow up and destroy everything in his path. He responds with measured, appropriate wrath that is perfectly just and perfectly suited to the crime that's been done. Because he is long-suffering. He's slow to anger. The Hebrew literally here is long of nostril. What does that mean to have a long nose? Well, it means that his nostrils don't flare in wrath easily. It takes a long time to make him mad. This is your God. This is his name. This is what he tells Moses. Right? You would say, all right, well, you probably don't want to tell Israel that you're long-suffering and slow to anger because they're good at making you mad. They've provoked you at Massa and Meribah. They've provoked you with the golden calf. They're going to go out into the wilderness and provoke you some more. Tell them you get angry, God. But he doesn't say that. He says, it takes a lot to make me angry. And then he adds kind of the central quality that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I spoke last week of Plato's story of the ring of Gyges. The pagans' notion of the one who possessed this ring would be able to, because it's a ring that confers invisibility, the one who has this ring would be able to steal, rape, and kill with impunity. And that Plato said this man would be as a god among men. And that's the pagan conception of the divine. The god among men is someone who has power and uses it to hurt and destroy and take whatever he wants. That is deity in the mind of the pagan. But the Apostle John says, God is totally different. God himself says, I'm totally different. I abound in love. Not just a little love, but abounding in love. God is nothing like that pagan concept of Zeus or the other gods who do what they want at the expense of everybody else. He is abounding in love. If you had to build, if you had to build a god from the ground up, you wouldn't be able to make one like this who abounds in love. I couldn't, you couldn't, the world's mythologies can't and don't. Only the Bible records such a god, a god who is abounding in steadfast love and truth. He's abounding in what some translations call faithfulness, but the base word here, imeth, you may know it as the name of a certain Kalormine in Lewis's The Last Battle. This is the word for truth, faithfulness. God will not change. He will not alter. He is abounding in truth. So he can't lie. It's impossible for God to lie. You can trust completely whatever he says because he doesn't have to be fact-checked. His character prevents him from lying. He bounds in truth. And if you want truth, look no further. You have it in Jesus, who is the truth. He also then adds that he keeps steadfast love for thousands. So this quality and justice are mentioned twice. God's love is so important that it has to be brought up again. I love 
I abound in love. And then he says, I guard love for thousands. Why does he have to guard it? Well, we know that in this world, love is vulnerable. Love is threatened. All kinds of things try to destroy love. Not least, of course, the devil and the flesh and the world. But God protects his love. He stops it from cooling off. He doesn't let it dry up and go away. He guards that love and he guards it for thousands. His love spreads. It's not just for his son and his spirit. It does not remain within a tight circle of his favorites in the heavenly court. Right? He could say, I'm abounding in love. I guard love for a few. But he doesn't say that. There are plenty of people who think of themselves as very loving. I care for my spouse. I care for my child. I take care of my coworkers. I have people working for me. I take care of them. And that's it. The rest of the world, they're on their own. I stick my neck out for nobody. That kind of thing. But God says, my love spreads. It's not just for a few. It is for thousands. Or as we would say, to millions. He is a God whose love reaches from end to end and orders all things sweetly. In other words, love is an extremely prominent attribute. It's mentioned twice. God's love spreads out across the world. In terms of ABC, we could say Armenians, Brazilians, Chinese, and so on. God's love spreads across the world to countless thousands. One way he shows that love is by forgiving. He lists all three of the main words for sin in the Bible. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. As if to say, we're not worried about technicalities here. Don't say, well, that was rebellion, that wasn't iniquity, and so that can't be forgiven. No, he forgives every sin but blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's what he does because he's loving. Even when we do what displeases him, what hurts us, what rebels against him, he forgives it. You don't have to atone for yourself. That, of course, is the message after the golden calf. Israel did not have to come and appease God. Moses simply went and said, God, please forgive us. And he did. Israel didn't buy him off. God was solicited by the mediator, and he responded. Remember the day before, the day before he proclaims his name, he had said, if I would go with you for a moment, I would consume you. And now, he says, I will go with you. A very graphic illustration of the truth that he is a God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet at the same time, he won't clear the guilty. Both are true. God's love does not triumph over or drive out his justice. The universalists, those who say everyone will go to heaven, nobody will go to hell, Those people say, well, see, right here, God's love spreads to thousands. He forgives sin. Therefore, everybody's going to heaven. It's it's a slam dunk, people. But in the same verse where he says that he forgives sin, he adds, I don't clear the guilty. I visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations. He will see that every transgression and disobedience receives that just 
recompense of reward. This is clearest at the cross. How does God do both? At the cross, God forgave iniquity, transgression, and sin. Our iniquity, transgression, and sin. But he also punished his son for that same iniquity, transgression, and sin. He didn't cancel the punishment of sin. He took it upon himself. He's perfectly just. And he's also perfectly loving. His justice is mentioned twice in this list. So is his love in this glorious proclamation of his name. One is not superior to the other. They are equally ultimate within our Father. So he visits that iniquity on the children. His love spreads to thousands, but his punishment of sin runs down the generations. If you do something truly evil, it can harm your children, your grandchildren, even your great-grandchildren. The evidence of that is all around you. I've told you before about uh, my friend in Sheridan who said that she is many times now booked into the Sheridan County Jail, the children and grandchildren of the crooks that she started booking into the jail when she started at the sheriff's office in the 1980s. The sin travels down the generations. God visits that iniquity, not in a vindictive or angry way, Simply, that's how the world is. Fathers, if we don't care for our children, this is what will happen. God is not divided. These attributes are not at war with each other. Yet without the mediator's work, the story is clearly telling us that God's justice would have been poured out on Israel for their sin with the calf. Leave me alone that I might destroy them. That's what God says back in chapter 32 and make of you a great nation. But God spared them because Moses stood in the gap and entreated. Through the mediator, all sides of God's name, his character, can be realized. We see his justice, and we see his forgiveness through the mediator's work. Well, that's a very brief, all too brief summary of what we see of the name of God in this passage. If you've understood the name of God like Moses did, Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. As soon as he heard this about God, he was overwhelmed. All he could do is bow before the God who is like this. Moses said, essentially, this is the deity that I want to worship. There is no better God anywhere. Worship required listening. God proclaimed his name. Moses listened to his name. We should too. And of course, because this is what God is like, we are called to be like him. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, abounding in faithfulness, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. These characteristics should be characteristics of us as well. Everyone who knows you, can you imagine this? If everyone who knew you was able to say, oh yeah, so-and-so, yep, when I think of that guy, I think slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and truth. Wow, what a testimonial. This is our God. This is what we are called to be. 
That's who our God is in Himself. That's who He is for us in Christ. May we never get over it. But always hasten to throw ourselves on the ground in worship of this God who saves. Amen. Father, we thank You for this Word. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God through salvation. Lord, thank You that through Your Son, the Mediator, You show us all sides of Yourself. You realize Your name and make it happen in the world. Let us share Your name, we pray. We might be like Jesus. We ask in His name. Amen.